for standing by. At this time, all participants are on listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your phone. Unmute your phone and record your name when prompted. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. May I introduce your first speaker for today? Julian Hulzer, please go ahead. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining today's press call. I'm Jillian Holzer, Communications Manager for the Food Program here at the World Resources Institute. Today, you will hear findings from the forthcoming synthesis of the World Resources Report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, which will be released very early Wednesday morning at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on December 5th. Everything you hear on this call is embargoed until that time. The report was produced by WRI in partnership with the World Bank, UN Environment, UN Development Program, and two French agricultural research agencies, CIRAD and INRA. If you haven't already seen a copy of the report, please email ali.friedman at wri.org right now, and she can send you the Dropbox link. Turning to our speakers now, we'll hear brief remarks and then open the lines to your questions. Our speakers today include Janet Ranganathan, who is Vice President for Science and Research at WRI and one of the report's authors, Tim Searchinger, who is Senior Fellow at WRI and lead author of this report. He is also a research scholar at Princeton University, Tobias Bedeker, who is an agriculture economist with the World Bank, and Kevin Brennan, who is Chief Executive of Corn Foods, a meat substitute company. Um, just a quick note that some of you may have seen that Lindue Sabanda was on our uh, advisory. She's having some connectivity issues while she's in Tanzania, but she is available to talk for any follow-up afterwards. If you're interested, just let us know. Uh, Lindue Sabanda is co-chair of the Global Alliance for Climate Smart Agriculture. She's also a farmer in Zimbabwe. So with that, let me turn it over to Janet. Thank you, Jillian, and good morning to everyone, and thanks for joining. Um, I've had the pleasure of working at WRI for 24 years, and this is easily one of the most important reports that we've ever published. Food is the mother of all sustainability challenges. Let me explain. Nearly every issue that I've worked on at WRI over the years has led back to the global food system. Climate change. Agriculture contributes one quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. We can't get below two degrees without major changes to this system. Deforestation and biodiversity loss. Expansion of agriculture, land is the primary driver of deforestation, habitat loss, and species extinction. Water, 70% of all fresh water use is used to produce food. The runoff of fertilizers and chemicals is a major source of water pollution, including the dead zones that we experience here in our own backyard in the Chesapeake Bay. Energy, growing demand for biofuels competes both for crops and land. In the U.S., 40% of the U.S. corn harvest is used to produce biofuel. In poverty, the majority of the world's poorest people work in agriculture. And ironically, those who put the food on our plates often have the least on their own plates. We have to change how we produce and consume food, not just for environmental reasons, but because it is an existential issue for humans. I might as well have said food is the mother of all sustainable development solutions. Um, with this report, we set out to answer a simple but very hard question. How do we feed the world by 2050? We're going to have 3 billion more mouths to feed, 
and those mouths will increasingly be consuming more resource-intensive animal-based foods as global incomes rise. To feed the world sustainably, um, WRI calculated that we need to close three gaps. A food gap. The world will need 56% more food by 2050. A land gap. We will need to prevent agriculture from expanding onto 593 million additional hectares of tropical forests and woody savannas. That's nearly twice the size of India by 2050. A GHG, a greenhouse gas mitigation gap. We need to lower greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and land use by two-thirds just to hold global warming below two degrees. So who should read this report? Basically, everyone has a stake in this. Governments figuring out how to achieve food security while also meeting climate commitments under the Paris Agreement. Health ministries grappling with rapidly rising costs linked to diet-related diseases. Companies in the food sector. Um, wishing to address hunger, deforestation, water stress, climate change, and development agencies um, addressing rural poverty. So Tim um, will share the report's menu of solutions for closing these three, gap, for three gaps. And I'll just end by saying that the, the, the issue and the challenge is much better, much bigger than we'd realize. Um, but the solutions are doable, and they come with multiple benefits. And WRI has started putting some of these solutions into practice I can speak about that in a, uh, um, during the question time if there's um, any interest in that. So over to you, Tim. Thank you, Janet. So closing three gaps Janet outlined requires producing more than 50% more food, doing so on the same amount of land, and while lowering today's greenhouse gas emissions. After six years of research and modeling, we have come up with a five-course menu to do so, uh, holding down growth and demand, increasing productivity on existing lands, linking those gains to protection and restoration of forests and peatlands, improving fishery management and agriculture, and changing farming methods to reduce emissions. Those five courses have 22 menu items, and the world needs to achieve substantial progress in all of them. So I'm going to emphasize a few major cross-cutting findings. First, as Janet said, the challenge is greater than many others have estimated for several reasons, but a big one is that many other analyses have assumed that the world can often simultaneously use the same lands twice. And the report focuses that we, it's not simply a problem of net agricultural expansion, but also an unappreciated problem is that agriculture is shifting into more carbon-rich and biodiverse lands like low-lying tropical forests. Second, producing more crops, milk, and meat on the same amount of land and increasing the efficiency of the use of animals and inputs like fertilizer provides the single most important step toward meeting both food production and environmental goals. If we tried to produce all the food needed in 2050 with today's production systems, the world would have to convert most of its remaining forests, and agriculture alone would produce almost twice the emissions in 2050 allowable from all human sources. And significantly, improving the productivity of small farmers in developing countries often provides the largest opportunities for gains. Third, to assure that these productivity gains don't lead to actual more local deforestation, governments need to explicitly link these yield gains to protection of forests and other natural lands. Fourth, a major focus of the report is on beef, lamb, and goat meat, so-called ruminant meats. Ruminants require two-thirds of global agricultural land and contribute roughly half of all emissions from agriculture and land use change. In the U.S. diet, ruminant meat generates almost half of the emissions but provides only 3% of the calories. 
To close these gaps, we recommend that 2 million heavy consumers of meat, lamb, and goat in 2050 in the U.S., Europe, Russia, and Brazil limit their consumption to one and a half servings per person per week. That's on average 40% less than what they're eating today. We consider that a more realistic goal than expecting large declines in all meat and milk consumption, particularly because the world's poor people are entitled to consume at least a little more. And along with holding down the growth and demand for meat, the world also needs to double to quadruple livestock productivity on the world's wetter grazing land, which is a major focus of the report because grazing land is often ignored. Fifth is the importance and potential for innovation. Just as in the energy sector, feeding the world sustainably will require many innovations in technology and farming methods. The good news is that we find that for every need, researchers have identified valuable opportunities. The bad news is that these innovations receive a fraction of the R&D needed. Innovations will also require flexible regulations so that the private sector knows it will have a market if it comes up with cost-effective innovative solutions. The good news is that almost all of the actions we identify have the potential to be cost-effective or profitable and have large co-benefits for society and health. Yet implementing the menu to sustainably feed 10 billion people in 2050 will require a whole new world of commitments and political will. Thank you, Tim. Next, we'll hear from Tobias Bedeker, who is an agriculture economist at the World Bank. Good morning. Tobias Bedeker representing the World Bank. Um, we're very excited to see WRI you know, leading the way and, and working with this strong set of partners, uh, one of which is our organization, to lay out such a compelling vision for creating a more sustainable food future and for identifying a wide range of practical solutions to close the gaps that both Janet and Tim mentioned, yeah, the food gap, the land gap, and the GHG mitigation gap simultaneously within the same, within one system and neighboring sectors, which is really an extremely complex uh, and at the same time um, fundamental issue that we face. Uh, because the gaps between where we are and where we need to be, just like in other uh, related climate change topics, have become so large and the timeline is so condensed that uh, we have no choice but to turn every stone and and try to uh, push in every possible direction. And we really congratulate WRI for having identified 22 of those. Um, now, from our side, the value add I think that we can bring is that we are an organization focused on ending poverty. Um, and I'd like to emphasize the links between the sustainable food and poverty agendas here. Um, that's not only because farmers are among the poorest and most exposed and also lowest capacity population groups globally, but at the same time are the ultimate agents of change that we're going to need in this context. They are the ones that are going to have to implement the vast majority of the solutions on offer. As we heard, many of these solutions offer win-wins, are economically beneficial, um, and, but that still could mean that farmers will require a lot of support to start implementing them because of upfront investment costs, because of um, education and capacity needs and other factors. And there are also some solutions that may involve trade-offs for farmers, and um, we, are, we very much welcome the farmer-centric approach that WRI has taken, that we all together have taken in this report. Um, there are really some key issues that the report touches on that, that, that require attention, such as the role of, um, the, of different levels of food prices and what they mean for poor farmers, poor consumers, and, um, and food production as a whole. 
Now, one key menu item that um, I wanted to point out that is worthy of uh, further attention in our view um, is the role um, of the about 570 billion US dollar in yearly public support by governments to agricultural production, um, which currently uh, are not very well targeted towards the achievement of um, the closing of the gaps that we have mentioned here, or indeed very climate smart overall. This amount, which is an estimate by the OECD covering 51 countries that represent two-thirds of global agricultural output, these 570 billion US dollars a year dwarf both climate finance and overseas development assistance to agriculture, increasing the effectiveness of what are essentially direct and indirect subsidies, decoupling them from production, and refocusing them on the achievement of positive climate outcomes would unlock very large amount of resources. And uh, furthermore, if these resources could be used in a way that would attract further private investment, which rightly is identified as a critical piece in the report, uh, we feel that we could have a real uh, game changer on our hands. So at the World Bank, we, we really look forward to, to working and using this report in uh, the dialogue with our clients. It's, I, I believe, uh, a resource, as Janet said, that we really haven't had before not in the way that it is comprehensive and not the way that it is thorough and not in the way that it is um that isn't that it isn't pulling any any punches when it comes to the needs for change in the various different directions thank you thank you tobias finally we've got kevin brennan who is ceo of corn foods yes um i mean operating globally as we do we are seeing a clear change in consumer behavior across the world which is a positive sign more people are turning to meat alternatives, especially foods that replicate the taste and texture of beef and red meats. The um, meat alternatives category is, in fact, one of the fastest growing food categories in many countries, up double digit in the likes of the UK, the Nordics, Benelux, Australia, and even starting to accelerate in markets like less developed like the USA. Um, what we're particularly seeing is that younger consumer, consumers are growing up with a different attitude towards meat. They're getting and, and agreeing with the health messages and planetary issues that have been highlighted around excessive meat production and consumption. Um, there is, and you probably hear widely cited, a rise of, in veganism around the world, but this is relatively small in scale. The, the thing that is making a difference and needs to make a difference is millions upon millions of people turning to a, a lower meat diet, not necessarily a small number of people uh, giving it up. Um, at Corn, and in fact that many of our competitors, uh, we're making uh, better products available, a greater range of products available to make it easier for consumers uh, to make this shift. Um, equally, I think there's a cautionary note, which is the scales of changes that I've described in consumer behavior are insufficient uh, to drive the level of meat reduction, particularly red meat consumption and production that is required, uh, as highlighted by the WRI, uh, and really is going to ultimately require some degree of government intervention uh, until meat pricing fully reflects the externalities that it's now clear that it, it creates, it will get over-consumed, even if more and better alternatives continue to become widely available. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks to all of our speakers. Uh, we'll now open it up to questions. Tom, please let everyone know how to ask a question. Thank you. To all participants over the phone, if you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your phone. 
Unmute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel, you may press star followed by the number two. One moment, please, to see if we have incoming questions. Great. So again, push star one if you'd like to ask a question. Um, joining us for the Q&A is also Rich Waite, who is associate with WRI's food program and one of the report's authors. A quick reminder that everything you're hearing today is embargoed for Wednesday, December 5th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 6.01 a.m. Central European Time. We're also happy to share the underlying data and any other information you need. Just contact Allie, Nicholas, or whoever invited you to today's call. We'll have a recording of this call available in a few hours in case you need to, to transcribe a quote or missed anything important. We'll add it to the Dropbox online press kit as well. So, operator, do we have any questions? Yes, speaker. So, our first question comes from Damien Carrington. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks, everybody. Damien Carrington from The Guardian. Um, I was just looking at the, um, the, the nice diagram at the start of the report, figure ES1, I think it says, um, which shows all the different steps towards closing the greenhouse gas gaps. And, uh, of course, the biggest one in there is uh, shifting diets, and that's obviously something that gets lots of attention in terms of reducing meat. You, you, you talked about, um, you know, the changes required in the United States, I think 40% reduction, but I wonder if you could talk a bit more generally about the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, how, how do you think uh, governments or whoever can be effective in trying to change people's diets? Thank you. Great. So, so I think we'll go first to Tim and then Kevin if you want to jump in with a response too. So two things first is that uh, although uh, the diet shift is very important, what that chart leaves out, which we have in a later chart, is that actually we factor in, even into our baseline, historical rates of yield gains or productivity gains. And so when you, when you factor in both the rates of yield gains and productivity gains that we already assume in the baseline, which are not automatic but have to be achieved, plus those that we do additionally, it is actually productivity gains that are 80% of the total action that needs to be taken. Now, on diets, the big distinction I think we make in our report is that because even in 2050, projections are that 6 billion people will eat very few animal products. We think that there has to be something like a 10% reduction in total consumption of animal products by the world's wealthy uh, just to kind of meet, reach our baseline that allows poor people to eat more. But the opportunity we think that's been missed uh, is to reduce consumption of ruminant meat. Uh, so basically beef and lamb. And those are uh, enormously pr uh, producing of emissions and occupy enormous quantities of land. So we also think that, uh, so the target we have requires 2 billion people in the world to reduce their consumption of ruminant meat from today's levels in their countries by 40% on average. And we think that's a realistic goal uh, because actually in the U.S. and Europe, uh, uh, beef consumption was already reduced by about one-third from the 1960s until today. And this is where substitutes like corn become extremely important. Uh, so in, in general, the focus, we think, uh, obviously today the politics aren't ready yet for something like a, a beef tax, although we talk about that, and that could be something in the future. But today there are all kinds of inducement opportunities, uh, I think, that we're working on, and we have a, 
Richard Wade, among other things, is working with companies to come up with better ways of marketing uh, alternatives, and, and he can answer more detailed questions about that if you have. Tim, sorry, uh, can I just ask you, the line dro- my line dropped out slightly when you said how much it, beef eating had reduced in Europe and the U.S. from the 1960s to today. Could you just say that again, please? About one-third. One-third. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So we eat about two-thirds of what we did back then. And a lot of that was due to shifts to chicken, which have other issues, but from, from a greenhouse gas and land use standpoint, actually still saves an enormous amount. Yeah, um, if I could then um, build on that, and I, I guess let's start with the positive. One thing we find if you take a meat reducer or a flexitarian, because we kind of track and speak to uh, a lot of them, they don't want to actually make the change. They don't find it particularly difficult, and they don't find themselves going back and uh, increasing their meat consumption back to the level. So I think if we can get people to change, it is a, a stickable be- behavior. Um, I think the, the point around, given that scale of change, is that it is going to require government intervention, certainly to get there quick enough. Um, and I think there are scales of things to that. I mean, the first thing is in the US, UK, and the rest of the EU, beef production is actually a subsidized uh, activity. So farmers are actively encouraged and paid to do it. I think the estimates were for the US that the price of beef to a consumer would probably double if you just removed the uh, subsidies that are given to farming. It's probably not the same scale in the UK and Europe, but wouldn't be uh, a million miles off. Um, the second thing is, uh, if you take pretty much all governments around the world, even within their own procurement, they have no policies at all around sustainability of the food that they uh, purchase or their departments purchase uh, in the context of actually climate change impact of it. They do have sustainability around waste, for example. Um, so whether that's procurement to hospitals, education, prisons, etc., governments are actually a big purchases of food. And don't, even policies like that would start to Uh, send some signals Um, and I do think now that there there is a growing momentum that a a meat tax ultimately is something that will come about in the same way as I think it took a long time for the uh, sugar tax to become credible it's been put in place it's it's starting to seem to work partly because it's driving manufacturing behavior change Um, I think we will see that but that probably in a five five year plus time frame rather than anything in the next couple of years Great. And Janet, do you want to jump in quickly? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the world's waking up that we do need to shift diets. The big question is, how do we shift diets? Um, the, the usual tried, tested, and hasn't worked approach has been more information and education. Um, one of the things that WRI is doing as a follow-up to this report is we've launched something called the Better Buying Lab, which basically harnesses the sophisticated marketing and behavioral change strategies that companies use every day on us um, for good, um, and, and we have some promising results that we can share later. And I should, I, but I do just want to emphasize, this is Tim Sertzinger again, that uh, there's there's a little bit of a tendency in this field for people to start treating diet changes as a magic asterisk, where somehow or other we're going to wave our hand and there's going to be just overwhelming reductions in consumption of animal products. And the purpose of this report was not to rely on any magic asterisk. So we wanted to focus on things we thought were realistic and achievable. And and so that's why we're really focusing on this reduction in ruminant beef. Uh, and and so that that's the thing. We this is too important a goal to rely on things that are too speculative. Great, Tom. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brad Plummer. Your line is open. Hey, thanks so much for uh, 
doing this call, I want to ask a little bit about climate change, because I noticed in the report uh, the effects of climate change are not included in the baseline. And then later on, there's a, a menu item about adapting to climate change, where it notes that, you know, it's still a little uncertain, the effects of climate change on crop yields. So that's why it wasn't included in the baseline. But it seems like under some of the plausible estimates of the effects of global warming on crop yields, you really get, you know, potentially seriously serious declines. It makes this problem uh, massively harder. I mean, I think you have at one point, you know, the land gap could increase by something like 50% um, if some of the estimates of what climate change uh, might do to crops uh, pans out. So I, I, I was just curious if you could sort of talk about that a little more and, and hear how climate change factors into this and how it potentially makes this already extremely tough task even tougher. Yeah, thanks. So this is Tim Searchinger again. Um, and that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the reason we didn't factor into the baseline is we didn't want that to become the whole issue of the report, kind of this uncertain effect, because it depends not only on the, on the uh, somewhat uncertain, although increasingly um, serious risks, but also the amount of adaptation. So the basic story is this, that even if you have a 10 or 20% effect on yields, which is big and important, um, remember, we have to already produce 56% more food on the same land. And so what it really does is just require even more of the effort. And so most of the things, not all, but most of the things you need to do to adapt to climate change are the same things you need to do. They just become even more important. So let me give you a kind of a pedestrian example. Uh, what we call incremental breeding. So most yield increases come from the steady progress of taking the best new uh, producing varieties, seeing what's working best, and breeding them further and improving them further. And uh, it's kind of the day-to-day -day less exciting part of breeding as opposed to major individual breakthroughs. Uh, in the U.S., we have an enormous number of resources devoted to that. In much of the rest of the world, there are a few resources devoted to that, so the breeding cycles are 15, 20 years. So one thing we need to do to increase yields is to improve that, to get the rest of the world toward U.S. levels in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, that means that you are simultaneously adapting to some extent to climate change because you are breeding in accordance with the changing climate. So there are lots of things like that. There are examples of things where you have to do very distinct things as a result of climate change, and probably the most prominent of those is that pretty much all of our major grains have a real problem from extreme heat events. And so for all of them, there have to be new breeding efforts to uh, have varieties that can tolerate these extreme heat events. So it's a combination of the two. So it's very important, and yes, the situation could be even worse than we've talked about, uh, but it basically just more or less means you take the same 22 menu items and, and you just have to increase that effort more. Tom, let's take our next question. Speakers, one moment, please. Just a reminder to everyone, if you've got a question, to please push star one and that our embargo time is Wednesday, December 5th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 6.01 a.m. Central European Time. And speakers, our next question comes from Steve Baragona. Your line is open. 
Hi, yeah, thanks for doing the call. Um, Janet, you've uh, you mentioned some uh, possible areas that um, the, uh, WRI is putting things into practice. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those? Um, yes, um, thanks for the question. Um, so I, I just briefly alluded to the Better Buying Lab, which is um, experimenting with how to um, ship diets. Um, so that's one. Um, another um, initiative that we launched um, at the Global Action Summit in California was the Cool Food Pledge. Um, this is a, a new platform that's going to help facilities offer diners more of what they want while slashing food-related greenhouse gas emissions, the goal being 25% by 2030. And we've got a, a whole um, slew of partners involved in that, UN Environment, um, Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, Healthcare Without Harm, um, and others. Um, and uh, we've already had um, some promising um, commitments, pledge signatories to date collectively serve more than 60 million meals annually, and um, that's growing. And then just the last one I wanted to mention um, is a, a group initiative called Champions 12.3. And 12.3 is the actual sustainable development goal focused on food loss and waste. Um, and um, there, again, we're working with partners, um, research institutes, civil society organizations to um, develop strategies and roll them out for cutting food loss and waste in half um, by 2030. Great. Great. Um, let's take our next question. Thank you, Speaker. So our next question comes from Michael. Michael, your line is open. Thanks very much. I think that's that's me. Um, this is Michael Ago with DevX. Uh, thanks for doing the call. I'm curious if you uh, looked at sort of the alignment between the goals um, that you set out here and kind of the donor-driven landscape around food security issues. In particular, I'm thinking of the U.S. government's Feed the Future initiative. This may have been sort of beyond the scope of, of this inquiry, but I'm wondering if, if you see um, kind of a general sense of alignment between those initiatives and the, the needs that, that you've outlined here, or whether you imagine that, um, that some of those initiatives will need to sort of shift their orientation as well. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, so here's part of the part of the challenge is this: that if if increasing productivity is one of the important goals, uh, and then almost everything that involves boosting productivity is part of the solution. And uh, Feed the Future does a lot of uh, smart things. Uh, the challenge is it's still not enough, and so partly we need more efforts. But I think one of the uh, one of the recommendations we have is that these efforts need to focus more on innovation. There's only so many dollars that come from these aid programs, and without innovation in management, uh, they're simply, uh, and we've set forth, we have a list of needed innovations, we're simply not going to get there. So I think if there's a single answer to that, that there isn't uh, enough focus right now in these programs on the synthesis of mitigation and productivity gains, not enough focus on mitigation. And the last thing I'll say is this. Um, one of the key findings of the report, or emphases of the report, is the need to link productivity gains with forest protection. And the reason for that is that if you boost yields in many developing countries, even though that will help save land globally, if they become more competitive globally, you can lead to more deforestation locally. So the boosting of yields of, of, of soybeans, for example, helps lead to the clearing of land for soybeans in Brazil. The boosting of yields for oil palm 
leads to the clearing of land for oil palm in Southeast Asia. So the yield gains have to be linked to um, protection of forest, and that requires that programs to protect forests and programs to uh, boost yields have to be linked together explicitly. And, and I think we've just got a thought from Janet. And Tobias, if you've got a thought after Janet, please, please feel free to jump in. So yeah, I just want to make a couple more comments here. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me um, about this is that governments will often um, equate the food problem with agricultural production. And there is this sort of, you know, in addition to productivity, we also have to sort of manage the demand. Um, and then the second challenge, second problem I, I see is that they fail to connect the dots. As I said at the beginning, all these issues that I've been working on for the last 24 years, I've been thinking about, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss, health, poverty. You know, we think about them in the silos, but they are often symptoms of this broken food system. So if we can connect the dots on these, I mean, shifting diets is a climate strategy. It's a food security strategy. It's a health-related strategy. Don't see governments necessarily connecting the dots. And if they did connect the dots, it would be even more compelling that there needs to be much more attention and investment in um, turning uh, um, you know, the food system to a much more stable one than it is today. Tobias, do you have anything you want to add or should we move on? Sure. As a representative of, like, of one of those development organizations, um, Michael, um, I want to say we're already doing quite a lot in this arena. Last year we helped our clients invest um, around two billion US dollars in climate finance for agriculture. And our different projects covered each of the five menu items that are identified in the WRR, but not all, not all of the 22 sub-items. Moreover, I think the key value add of this report for us is this high level of resolution and the high degree of specificity in with which each of the menu items is described. and. As I said earlier, this will be the, a very useful input in our dialogue with the clients uh, to point out what the possibilities are and try to increase our impacts. Uh, this very much includes this task of connecting the dots. In that context, I wanted to um, highlight that we will be announcing a new corporate commitments for the World Bank at the COP um, towards the year 2025, in, in which this cross-sectoral work and connecting the dots um, plays an important role. Thank you. Thank you, Tobias. So um, I think we'll just wrap up in just a second. Are there any final thoughts from our speakers? So, so there maybe there are a couple things I didn't get a chance to emphasize that I think should highlight. Uh, one is on the demand side. We do deal with bioenergy, and uh, we offer the statistic that uh, some of the goals for bioenergy, many of them, uh, which contemplate bioenergy supplying about 20% of the world's energy in 2050, uh, would require an amount of biomass that's equal to all the world's crops, all the world's crop residues, all the world's grass eaten by livestock, and all the world's wood. And obviously, even any small measure moving toward that essentially dramatically increases land use competition and would make it impossible to achieve a sustainable food future. And we go into how that is actually based on various forms of double counting that I won't uh, go through today. And, and the other is I just want to emphasize the opportunities for, for innovation that we saw. So there were times in writing this report uh, where we grew very pessimistic because of the scope of the challenge. But as we 
kept working on things, it was interesting to discover that even small groups of scientists getting small amounts of money were making progress. Uh, in the private sector, the small private sector has made real progress with these neat substitutes. I'll give you one example of uh, dealing with nitrogen, which is a huge problem. Um, there are biologists who have determined that a variety of crops, a variety of grasses, actually have natural properties that essentially keep nitrogen in, keep it from turning into the forms that lead to nitrous oxide, which is a major greenhouse gas, and runoff and lead to all kinds of inefficiencies, require yet more nitrogen. Uh, so we, we outlined a bunch of these in the, in the report, and one of but the amount of money that goes into this is small, and the amount of money that goes into developing the solutions is also small. So even where we know where things to do, for example, with changing water management with rice, there's no one out there trying to analyze, well, which exact irrigation systems can you do this in and how better. So there's, there's also dollars that need to go to the basic development, not just research, but development of kind of developing the plans for actually doing this and monitoring progress. So I just wanted to emphasize those things. At the end of the day, we, we came out uh, maybe even unfairly optimistic because we saw so many of these uh, innovations. Uh, and I think that's exciting, but the amount of effort being made to promote them is remarkably small. So um, unsurprisingly, there is no silver bullet for this mother of all sustainability challenges. And um, 22 bronze bullets on, this menu, on the menus that we laid out may seem daunting, um, but from a national government perspective, the relative importance of each of these menu items will differ. So for the U.S., you can imagine that we've got really high yields here, some of the best in the world, but there's things more we could be doing on the food waste and, and demand side. However, from a global perspective, um, we need to order everything on the menu. Thank you. And yeah, and this is Rich Wade at, at WRI. Just one thing that I'd like to emphasize that didn't come up on the call is the, the role of fish, uh, fisheries and aquaculture. Um, fish contribute 17% of uh, animal-based protein that, that, that we consume. They're important for more than 3 billion people in developing countries, and we project fish consumption um, to rise by nearly 60% by 2050 under business-as-usual scenario. So since the wild fish cash peaked back in the 1990s and might have even declined since then, we have to make sure we improve wild fisheries management, but then we're also going to have to get aquaculture right because we project that aquaculture production is going to have to more than double by 2050 um, to meet that fish demand, um, and it can be done sustainably, and there's, there's, there's some suggestions in the, in, in the report for how to do so. Great. Okay. Well, thank you all. I think we will leave it with that. A reminder that our embargo time is 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, December 5th. Uh, we're happy to connect you with any of the speakers. If you'd like, if you have follow-up questions, just get in touch with us. And thank you for joining today's call. Thank you, and that concludes today's conference. Thank you all for your participation. You may now disconnect.